Joshua chapter 4 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We kind of caught the children of Israel at the end of chapter 3, and they've been holding for a while here, uh, with uh, having make, making their way really across the uh, Jordan River and God's uh, holding back of the water. I've uh, heard somebody put it where, you know, so often people have difficulty with the miracles of God. And uh, to me, once you can accept Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, everything else is easy. There's nothing, I mean, everything else is smaller than that. So he's kind of dammed up this water from its uh, flow downstream and uh, at the area of Jericho of the Jordan River. And we know we're told very specifically by God how far the water was backing up all the way to a city called Adam. So the water backup was somewhere between 10 and 20 miles. We think nothing of us building Hoover Dam and backing water up some distance. And, but we did that. But we have a problem with the fact that God could in His power just build a dam you can't see and back the water up for a day or so into the land and move it through. So we catch them in the middle of the children of Israel making their way across this uh, uh, backed up Jordan River. And uh, we'll continue it, the story now, account of it in Joshua chapter 4. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourself twelve men from the people, one man from each of the twelve tribes. Here's what I want you to command them to do. Say, Take for yourselves twelve stones from there, out of the midst of the Jordan River, which is still being held back by God, and uh, take twelve large stones out of the midst of that Jordan, take it from the place where the priests feet stood firm where they're holding the Ark of the Covenant which represented God's presence they shall each take one stone and you shall carry them over with you out of that parted Jordan River and leave them in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight and we know a little bit further in the count that where the children of Israel will lodge following the crossing of the, uh, the Jordan River this miraculous crossing will be a city called Gilgal and so a distance of about eight miles from the crossing. So these guys had to probably uh, be young and strong to be able to carry these large stones that will con constitute a uh, kind of a memorial uh, from the site of the crossing to Gilgal. And then Joshua obediently called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe, and he said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Each of you take a stone on his shoulder, so good-sized stones, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. And here's the purpose for which they're going to gather these twelve stones. That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be a memorial for the children of Israel forever. From one end of the Bible to the other. Genesis to Revelation, God is into memorials. 
He is into establishing memorials that will cause his people to remember great things that he has done in our history. Why would God feel that it was important to establish memorials except for the fact that we forget so much and need to be reminded of these great, great miracles that he has done in in our, our history. And I think surely one of the most uh, greatest enemies to faith is forgetfulness. And so the Lord establishes these memorials to cause us to remember the greatness of his power, the great things that he has done uh, in, in our, our past. And I think that most of us would probably feel we need less miracles from God if, uh, if we took the time to remember all of the miracles that God has done for us in our lives. And I think that so often we have the tendency that we, can, we need a miracle here today in this area in order to bolster our faith when God knows that very often we just need to take some time and remember the great things that He's done in our past. God knew with the children of Israel. Um, I remember one time, years, zillions of years ago, back in the early 80s, and... Um, we were all brand new Christians, you know, and we're all reading the book of Acts at the same time. And it seemed like, man, a miracle a minute. And everywhere you turn, someone's getting raised from the dead and this and cloths being put on people and their illnesses, all this whole thing going and, uh, and And we didn't quite have a sense of the timeline for the book of Acts. It looks like God was doing like 80 miracles a day in the early church. And so uh, I remember one fellow, he kind of got a little frustrated with the local church because he wasn't seeing this degree of miracles that God was doing. So there must be something wrong with the church. And later on he began to realize, oh, this covered a period of decades. that These things were going on. So God knew, knew he wasn't going to be doing a miracle on the level of the parting of the Jordan River every other Tuesday He didn't want their life uh, and their faith uh, based upon miracles, but it was sufficient to do this as was necessary to prepare their faith and then to provide memorials that they would look back and remember uh, in their past the great things that God had done. All of this applies to us in a very powerful way, but I'll get to that later. Maybe we'll get raptured before that and uh, it'll be very powerful for us in heaven. So they, but the purpose of the establishing of this memorial, and they're going to take these 12 stones, carry them uh, the eight miles to Gilgal, stack them up as kind of a monument. And the purpose for it, God tells us there in verse 6, is so that in subsequent generations, when their kiddos would look at that pile of rocks, 12 rocks, knowing that it represents the 12 tribes of Israel, they'd say, hey, Dad, what does that mean? And then it would be a very, very easy way then for that dad or that mom to transfer their miraculous history with God to their children, to the next generation. The inquisitive minds of children is a gift from God to parents, if we will but just recognize it. Sometimes it's easy to get impatient. Daddy, how come? Daddy, how come? Daddy, mom, how come? How come? Mom, how come? I mean, second only to when will we get there? When will we get there? You said that five minutes ago. 
But, it, but when the kids, they're always asking. God's given them an inquisitive mind. How come? How come? How come? How come? Never v- get frustrated over that or view it as something to get annoyed at. It's something that God has given that child and given to you so that you can then answer their question in a way that develops their faith in God. And so God knew kiddos are going to look at something like that. They're going to wonder why. They're going to ask why. And the reason they're going to ask why is that they want to be informed on this issue. And so it gives us that opportunity to inform them. One of the great challenges that God faces, and we see it continually in the Old Testament, we'll see it even more when we get to the book of Judges, one of the great challenges that God faced with His people was how to get um, one generation to pass down its spiritual heritage to the next generation. So often there'd be this one great generation that would walk with God, the baton wouldn't be handed off well to the next generation, and then that generation would be lost or they wouldn't continue in the way that their forefathers did. And these memorials sparked these questions, the questions were to be answered, and the faith of children be developed. There's hardly any question that a child can ask today, even in life, that we somehow cannot turn toward God or turn toward something of the Lord that then builds them up in viewing life, viewing the world from a spiritual or biblical perspective. So it's a gift that God gives us in this way. And so this was the purpose of the memorial. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded. They took up the twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, still being held back as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they carried them over to the place where they lodged, and they laid them down there. Then Joshua, in addition to these men, he took up twelve stones in the midst, uh, he set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan River. So you got this Jordan River, just like that wall, just backed up, you know. And you got the priests right over here, and they got the Ark of the Covenant. Come on, you work with me on this. So here they are, and uh, there's a rock bed that's underneath, uh, uh, underneath them. And also, he comes from the side of the Jordan. He comes back out to where they are, and he builds a memorial of 12 stones right next to where the priests are, with the Ark of, of the Covenant. So we got two memorials being built. One memorial is going to be on dry land in Gilgal. It's visible to all of the world. One memorial is going to be set up in the middle of the Jordan River, and when the Jordan River resumes its flow, it will be hidden to everyone but God and the people who participated in the miracle. And so he set up the twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the, jo- of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood and they are there to this day. And so the priests who bore the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua and the people hurried and crossed over. I like that word hurried. So they believe that this is a miracle. God's holding that water like this. This is something. God's doing it. Ark of the Covenant, it represents the presence of God. They still hurried. <laughs> Let's not take too long here on this. I mean, maybe God's got like a clock time, you know, ticking on this thing. And so 
they still hurried across. It was kind of unprecedented. And of course, there's a lot of people needing to get across. Uh, two plus million. They hurried and they crossed over. And then they, it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over that the ark of the Lord uh, and the priests crossed over it in the presence of the people. And the men of Reuben and the men of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they crossed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. And on that day, as a result of this great miracle, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him, great respect and reverence for him, as they feared Moses all of the days of his life. And so another uh, two great things that were happening in this uh, great miracle, one of them was to establish a memorial for the, for the children, uh, to build up the faith of the children of Israel, but it was also to bolster the credentials of Joshua as a leader. In doing this miracle and Moses leading the people and, and, and God revealing this miracle to Moses, God leading the people in the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, it, it was God's way of saying, uh, ladies and gentlemen, remember these were very rebellious people, of saying, ladies and gentlemen, this is my man, this is who I have chosen to lead you in the conquest of the land, and so listen to him, I'm with him, and do what he tells you to do. Now, God knows God is always several steps ahead of us. You believe that? I believe that. I want that. But he's at least several steps ahead of us. And, uh, well, I won't get into that. We could tangent. It's ridiculous. But anyway, he's several steps ahead of us because it's only going to be in a couple of chapters that God is going to reveal the battle plan for the conquest of Jericho. And uh, it is the most unorthodox battle plan you've ever heard for taking a city. And when Joshua brings that battle plan to the priests and to the army and says, listen, this is how we're going to take Jericho, nobody even flinched. Nobody hesitated. And the reason that they didn't hesitate or balk at this very unusual plan was that God had already done this miracle confirming to them, listen, uh, do what he says, doesn't always make sense to you, but I'm in it. And so God was, was well ahead of what he knew was uh, coming in their future. So then the L Lord spoke to Joshua saying, command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. So they're the last to leave the Jordan River now. And the first ones in as leaders, they make sure everybody gets out. The priests, they're the last ones to come out. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come out from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place. And so the, the whole flow began back down toward the Dead Sea and overflowed all of its banks as before. And that final phrase, overflowed all of its banks as before, is what uh, causes us to know that they were crossing a swollen, um, swollen, uh, overflowing river is, is the river that they, they had crossed. So it must have been awesome to just see as they got to the other side, then watch God release that invisible dam 
and then for that water to just begin to rush in its former uh, force toward the Dead Sea really would have been uh, something to see on that and uh, just amazing. You think, wow, what could top what just happened? And then you, you get a chance to see that. And so uh, the, the end of that, that great miracle. And now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho so they're now officially all of them in the promised land and those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan Joshua set up in Gilgal and uh, then so the the second memorial set up there and then he spoke to the children of Israel saying when your children ask their fathers in time to come saying what are these stones then you shall let your children know saying Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea which he dried up before us until we had crossed over and so when the kids asked the question just tell them the story <laughs> you know all they gotta do is know the story and that all of the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord that it is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever so the miracle was designed to let the Gentile nations uh, learn about the power of Israel's God. It was designed to develop the faith and respect for God among God's people, among the children of Israel. Now one of the things that's fascinating as we think about, and again we realize, as Jesus said, the volume of the book, it testifies to him. He said to the religious leaders, you do search the scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. One of the fascinating things about chapter 4, and one of the beautiful things about in the light of the New Testament, is these two memorials. And uh, how one of them was hidden, the water, and the other was an open memorial out on dry land. We fast forward into the New Testament and we realize as we look at the New Testament we ask ourselves what are the ordinances that Jesus has given to the church, to the body of Christ? Well, we find two ordinances that number one were taught by Jesus that were practiced in the book of Acts and number three were taught on in the epistles. And the two ordinances are number one, water baptism which is a public memorial in which I am testifying to the whole world my faith in Jesus before the saved and unsaved. Interesting that the second memorial that Jesus established for us in the New Testament is the Lord's Supper. It's hidden. It's for Christians only. Only believers are to partake in that because only believers can appreciate the beauty of the miracle that has happened in our lives because of the salvation that Christ has brought into our lives. And so even as it is in the Old Testament, so in the New Testament, two memorials, one public, one private. Come now to chapter 5. And so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters 
of the Jordan be from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. All right. News traveled fast. Put yourself in the, in the shoes of the people in Jericho. So there you are. You wake up in the morning. You say, wow, looks like we're going to be lunch for those people. Two to three million people there. God got them out of Egypt. Got them across the Red Sea. Took care of them for 40 years in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Used them to defeat Sog, uh, Og and, and uh, uh, Sihon. So defeat, all of these things, they look at them and say, and, the, and we're next. The one consolation they had is that there was a very swollen Jordan River between them and the children of Israel. By the time they build bridges and pontoon boats or wait until summer until the water flow has gone down to be able to cross it, maybe the circumstances will change. They at least thought they had several months or at least several weeks before they'd have to deal with any crisis related to the children of Israel. And then someone from the top of the wall, you're not going to believe this. And the water starts to back up, and in one day these people are camped at their gates on the west side of the Jordan River. And word of that spread quickly among the people that God was going to defeat the land in the land because of the greatness of their sin and their wickedness. And they essentially, they, they were completely um, dispirited. Uh, they, they basically looked at it in light of the miracle that God had done. They had said, we are doomed <laughs> as a result of this. And, and so uh, that was uh, kind of how they viewed things. I think it's interesting when I look at this passage, you know, you, and I'm not going to go back into it. We've been in it in think of Deuteronomy and also in, in uh, uh, other parts of the Pentateuch two or three times where we talked about the wickedness of the people that God was displacing from the land. Uh, he w- had given them, he had spoken to Abraham 600 years earlier and said, I'm not going to uh, give you the land until the fullness of the sin of the Amorites is, is completed. He waited 600 years for the people of the land to repent. They didn't repent. Their wickedness and their sin was so great that it was a danger to the future of mankind in the world and a danger to his plan on planet earth. And so now he's going to destroy them and displace them with the children of Israel. So I just told you what I wasn't going to tell you. Just snuck that in on you. And so here, here's this whole um, thing that he's laying out. And I, I think it's interesting is it, to look at the, the wickedness of these people and their place in the land and, all, and they're completely terrified related to God and the work of God through his people. I think that it is so important to realize so if the world, it, the world tries to tempt us, the devil tries to tempt us, nobody is truly enjoying their wickedness out there. And the, in the light of God, His power, His work through His, His people, there's a fear that's in their lives related to their future because of the presence of God in this world and His work through His people. They are terrified of, of, 
uh, of the God of, of Israel and what it is that he's going to do next. Now, if you ask me, when you have just uh, crossed two to three million people across the Jordan River and you've brought them into the land and uh, you've got a beachhead now into the land of, of promise. Your enemies are completely terrified. They're completely demoralized. Momentum is on your side. I mean, from my point of view, it would be, now let's strike while the striking is good. Now's the time to hit them. Let's not even hardly give ourselves a night before we hit the city of Jericho and wipe it out now. And, uh, and yet, I don't know if you've discovered this in your Christian life, but uh, sometimes God does diff things differently than how uh, I would do them. His ways are not our ways, the Bible says. They're better, as a paraphrase, but that's, that's what the Bible says. They're always better than our ways. So God says, no, nope, these folks aren't ready yet to take Jericho, and there's three specific things that he wanted to do in them to prepare their faith and to prepare them spiritually for the conquest of the land. They weren't ready yet uh, to begin that, that conquest. And that's what this chapter is about. Three different things that were designed to uh, prepare them in this spiritual way. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Um, these are not... Uh, titanium knives uh, these are not even stainless steel knives uh, these are flint knives that he is to take and circumcise the sons of Israel again for the second time they can't be circumcised the second time but we'll see what it means in just a moment so Joshua made flint knives for himself and he circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of foreskins it was named for the event and uh, now you're talking about circumcising uh, at least 600,000 uh, men, probably more. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All of the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. All the Jews coming out of Egypt, the Jewish males, they had been circumcised. For all the people had, who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born, the sons born in the wilderness during that 40 years of wandering, on the way as they came out of Egypt, they hadn't been circumcised during that period. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. And then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he had raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised uh, on the way. And so it was when they had finished circumcising all of the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. That goes without saying, but God makes sure that we, we know that about the, the situation. Now, one of the fascinating things about this is when you uh, look at the history, uh, military history of the world, what army in history lays siege to their enemy's stronghold 
and then deliberately, physically disables its entire army. I mean, this doesn't make any sense at all. Lord, I mean, if you're going to have us doing this circumcision thing, we get it. You commanded it. We were disobedient there. But couldn't we have taken care of this on the other side of a swollen Jordan River? Do we have to be right outside the gates of our enemies to incapacitate our entire army for at least several days and maybe more than, than a week? And by doing this, I mean, they are making themselves completely vulnerable to the attack of their, their enemies over those next few days. And we don't have to be reminded of, of how incapacitating this uh, surgery is. We think about in the book of Genesis when the uh, Shechem, in the city of Shechem, when uh, the son of the, uh, uh, of the king of the city, and his name was Shechem also, he violated Dinah, who was uh, one of the, the was the sister of the twelve brothers that made up the the twelve tribes of Israel, and he had basically raped her. And uh, then they had spoken to the men of Shechem, if they would just be circumcised, then we'll all become one people, and all of this. And so all the men were circumcised, and all it took was uh, Simeon and Levi to go into the entire village, and they killed every man. God did not call them to do it. They did it in their own rage. But it gives us the idea of how just two men could go in after this particular surgery and wipe out an entire village. It left these people very, very vulnerable to counterattack uh, uh, by, by Jericho. Now, one of the things that um, it, this was designed to teach them and what's... Jewish circumcision meant to a Jew was it was a sign that was given to Abram and to his descendants as a, a promise that God would keep his promises to them and that he would make a great nation of Abram and that God would bring them into the promised land. And so when the Jewish males were circumcised, it was a communication on their part saying to God, we believe your promise to make a great nation of Father Abraham and also to lead us into the promised land. And so that's one of the things that it represented. Circumcision also represented uh, ownership. It was a mark of ownership. It was a physical sign that they belonged to God of all of the peoples in, in the whole world. And so it reminded them regularly that they weren't like everybody else in the world. They had a covenant relationship with God. It also represented spiritually the cutting away of the flesh. So it symbolized to them that they were to be a people who was not ruled by their flesh, but that they were ruled by the Holy Spirit. And so it was to be, the, the physical circumcision was to be an uh, outward symbol of their heart and their heart attitude toward God, that their heart was circumcised, their heart was no longer dominated by the flesh. The great mistake that the Jews ended up making was believing that what was most important to God was the physical act of circumcision rather than what it was to represent, and that is that my heart is circumcised, it's not dominated by the flesh, but it's dominated uh, by God. I'm a person who no longer lives for the flesh, but I now live for God. And so since circumcision was given as a sign of God's faithfulness, uh, 
to keep his promise that they would one day enter into the promised land, it would have sent very mixed messages on God's part, and God doesn't send mixed messages. It would have sent very mixed message on God's part if he had taken them into the promised land and conquered it without them being circumcised. So he says we've got to take care of this circumcision uh, issue. Now, circumcision is a picture, Paul tells us in the New Testament, for the child of God. It symbolizes something very important for us uh, spiritually as, as Christians. As Christians, a physical circumcision is not uh, required of us. We have a covenant with God, an agreement, a contract with God that's based upon the blood of Jesus Christ, not based upon circumcision or, or anything uh, else. And so our, uh, our covenant with God is represented by a, a, a circumcised heart. It's, re it's represented by desiring to and then living a holy, obedient life for God rather than for the flesh. Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said, In Him, that is Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so as Christians we have a greater seal, a greater evidence that we are owned by God, that we are in relationship with God than a physical circumcision. The greater sign of our relationship with God, of His ownership in our life, is that God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit has come into our lives. And so that's the great, great mark of, of ownership related uh, to, to God, that He has provided us now with the power to do and the will to do of His good pleasure to live for God rather than to live for the flesh. Now, as we look at the imagery and we see that the crossing of the, the uh, Jordan River represents the baptism with the Holy Spirit, then this circumcision of the new generation, it, it represents the um, uh, now possessing the power of the Holy Spirit, it, it represents the will on our part to now live a life of saying no to our flesh and saying yes to the Holy Spirit in the daily decisions of our, of our, of our lives. Now, a person can be baptized with the Holy Spirit, can have the power absolutely to live a life like Christ, but unless that power is applied to a desire to live a holy life, then that power is it, not going to be directed properly. So a person must be baptized with the Holy Spirit, but then also come to a place with, with God where I say, Lord, I don't want to live for my flesh anymore. I want to live for you. I want to uh, live for the Holy Spirit. I want to live an obedient life uh, to you. And then the Lord is able to bring, provide us with the power then to live that life. So it's the power. God provides us with the power. We bring the will and the desire to use that power to live a holy life and to live this life as the Bible talks about putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And so uh, here is this circumcision. What it represents for us as Christians is that I'm committing to a life of saying no to the flesh and saying yes to the new man who I am in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things that's interesting about that is as we do that, you're going to make yourself vulnerable in life. 
Have you ever noticed that there's a lot of commands that God gives us as his children that require the putting off of the old man to do it and then the putting on of the new man to do it and we look at it and say, God, if I obey you in this situation, you're going to leave me as vulnerable in this situation as the children of Israel ever were in front of Jericho. God says, I've been through this before. I have a track record of taking care of people in this kind of a circumstance. Sometimes he calls us to ask people for forgiveness. We have to make ourselves vulnerable to do that. Lord, they can, they can tear me apart if I say no to the old man and I say yes to you and I obey what you say concerning forgiveness. God says, turn the other cheek in the situation. Don't let that offense that they've done to you cause you to come down to their level. Say, Lord, boy, if I obey you in this, I mean, I'd like to fight fire with fire. I'm liking a lot of those Psalms of David in the Old Testament. I kind of like to break some teeth and junk like that. You know, it's right there in the Bible. And so we look at it and we say, no, the Lord says, I want you to do this. I want you to turn the other cheek here. Man, they're gonna, you don't know what they're going to do to me. You know, they're going to they're they're see me. I'm weak and the whole thing and they're going to really get me. And the Lord knows how to protect his people. You and I, when we are made vulnerable as a result of obeying God's word, God will never allow the devil to use that against us. He'll never allow that to happen, just like he protects the children of Israel here in this. Sometimes I, through the years, I, every once in a while, someone will come up, and it's really, it's cute, I love it. And people are learning about prayer, and they're learning about different things, and one day they're praying, and the light goes on. Wait a second, I'm praying out loud. Not only can God hear my prayer, but the devil can hear my prayer. Pastor, can I pray out loud? Because I'm praying some pretty significant things and I think if the devil hears those things, he could use them against me. So when I'm saying those things, I have to say them quietly in my own mind so the devil can't know about those things and the other things I can say out loud where it doesn't matter. God will never allow anything you say out loud in prayer to him to be used against you by the devil. He knows how to protect us as we obey the Lord. And so a beautiful picture here is they make themselves uh, vulnerable in this place. They make this commitment now. God, we've received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now we want to live this life of saying yes to you, no to the flesh. No one can conquer the promises of God without making that commitment to God. And so here they go. They've been circumcised. And so it was, uh, again, verse 8, that when they had finished circumcising all the people, they stayed in their places in the camp until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of, this, of the place is called Gilgal to this day. And Gilgal means a circle of stones are rolling away. It's interesting, we look at this and we say, okay, this whole event of crossing the Jordan River and the circumcision, God looks at it and says, what I've done here today is I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt uh, from you. And I think that what God is declaring here is that it speaks of the reproach that the children of Israel had in the world at that time. All they were known to the whole Gentile world was, isn't that that bunch of slaves out of Egypt? And when God brought them out of Egypt, brought them across 
into the promised land, the crossing of, of the Jordan River, there were no more Egyptians telling Hebrew jokes. Nobody was telling Hebrew jokes any longer. They weren't the low people on the totem pole, the people you tell jokes about and that kind of thing. Nobody was saying jokes about the children of Israel anymore in the light of their God. And so the reproach of their history in, in Egypt, God lifted them, that off of them. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal, and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight uh, on the plains of Jericho. And so the second thing that God wanted them to do before they went into the land, number one, they needed to be circumcised. Number two, he wanted them to keep the Passover. So this, they kept the Passover right when they came out of Egypt, and here we see them keeping the Passover uh, once again here. And so God said, I want you to keep that Passover before we uh, take and, and conquer uh, the land. Now, they could, have never part- they could have never celebrated the Passover without being circumcised. It was a requirement to be circumcised as a Jew or even a Gentile to partake in the Passover. Now, the Passover, the whole celebration of the Passover, was a time to remember the great miracle that God did in delivering them out of the bondage of Egypt. And so what God is doing here is he is having them celebrate the Passover. They have a gigantic step of faith in front of them in the conquering of the promised land. They're looking at the city of Jericho. It's just one city in the whole land. The walls are 45 feet high. How in the world are we going to take even one city, let alone the whole, the whole nation? And so this was a big thing that God was calling them to. God said, all right, before you tackle the big thing that I'm calling you to, I want you to remember the big thing I did in your past. As difficult and as hard and as big a step of faith as the conquest of the promised land was, and it was a big deal. It was nothing compared to what God had to do to get them out of Egypt. That was the biggest miracle of all, to get them out of Egypt. So he just wants them to calm down, take some time, and to be able to look at their history and to realize, wow, I've been in deeper water than this before. We've been through more impossible situations than this before. And I would contend, not always, but absolutely the majority of times, when we are facing something huge in our near future that God is calling us to do, that He is not calling us to do something greater than something that He has already done in our lives. If He can just force us to stop, remember that, and allow it to nurture faith inside of our hearts, inside of of our lives. And so it's an important thing to do. And so he stops them and he gets them to remember their history with God. I think as an application for us as Christians, if, if God, the Bible teaches, if God was willing to make the sacrifice that was required of him, Necessary for our salvation, the sacrifice of his only begotten son in order for us to be saved, then how much more is he going to be willing to lead us into possessing every single promise in the New Testament? 
Oh God, I don't know. I look at that promise. I look at that. You say you'll do this and I don't believe it. People have been telling me I'm this for 40 years and that's all I know myself to be. Now you're saying something entirely different. I don't know if something like that is going to happen. If God was willing to sacrifice His Son to save us, then there is no way in the world He's not going to do the lesser thing of being a, causing us to possess every promise of His in, in the New Testament. One of my favorite verses, there's so many favorite verses in Romans chapter 8, aren't there? But one of my favorites is, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things. Everything is a smaller thing after our salvation. And so they partook and celebrated the Passover. And then notice verse 11. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover. Unleavened bread, parched grain on the very same day. And then the manna. They've been eating that for 40 years. It's been good. But it's been the same thing for 40 years. It ceased the day after they had eaten the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. And so the manna disappears. Now they begin to eat. I mean, they get their first taste of fruit. They get their taste of bread and all of these different kinds of things. And so the manna ceases. Now they're eating the food of the promised land. And so, it's, again, it's a beautiful picture of the quality of life that's found between the Christian who lives the wilderness experience, that is, they won't believe the promises of God, they won't obey the promises of God, and so they're on their way to heaven, absolutely on their way to heaven, but their life is a wilderness experience. It's just going in circles, it's bland, it's as bland as manna, they're being taken care of, they're fed, they're clothed, they're what, they get there, it's, it's, it is what it is. But, but that's one quality of Christianity, but it's not what God wants us to experience. To go into the promised land and to begin to obey God and begin to possess these promises is like going to the best brunch at the finest hotel in town on a Sunday and eating all of those miles of food or a cruise compared to a bowl of lima beans. The Spirit-filled life, the life of faith, the life of growth, of moving on to the next step in my Christian life, it's, the, it's flavorful, it's zesty, it's the greatest life that a person can live compared to multo meal, which is good once in a while, but not every day for 40 years. And so the manna stopped. These are the things that God was, was doing and He wanted to accomplish in them before they took the land. Now it came to pass when... Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. I, I'm inclined to think that what Joshua was doing at this point in time is probably what a lot of us would do if we were in his shoes. Joshua's in the buck stops here place. That's his position among the children of Israel. The buck stops with God, but he's kind of the guy that you know, God has chosen to do these, uh, all these things. And so, remember, he doesn't have any... They've crossed the, the Jordan River. They're in front of Jericho. He does not have a battle plan from God over how to take this city. 
kind of like building a church without a road to get to it. We did that here, by the way. (laughs) You take a lot of long walks when you do stuff like that. So he doesn't know how God is going to do this, this whole thing. And uh, so I think he's out just walking and he's looking at Jericho and, and trying to talk with God and figure things out and all that kind of stuff and, and a kind of a lonely position and, and that's what he's, he's trying to, f- to figure out. Clearly the next, bat, the next thing that needs to, to happen is the conquest of Jericho. So Lord, anyone, time you want to tell me about scaling ladders or siege machines or, or you know, battering rams, something like that, just fill me in on this. And uh, nothing really uh, from, from the Lord. So he's, he's feeling, I think, just a great weight of responsibility. And when he lifts up his eyes, suddenly he sees a man opposite him. And uh, more than that, the man is armed. And more than the fact that the man is armed, he's already got his weapon drawn. Now, Joshua's question is an interesting one. As he went to the man, and uh, Joshua's a man of war. He's not afraid of any of that stuff. He went to him, and he said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So the guy's got a sword drawn. And so Joshua wants to know, listen, are you a Canaanite from Jericho or are you one of the children of Israel? He doesn't know whether maybe there's another uh, military man from the camp of the children of Israel that's out wandering around like he is, trying to figure things out. So he did, or he doesn't know whether he's run into a spy that's come out of Jericho. So he basically says to this guy, are you friend or are you foe? Are you for us or for our adversaries? And this man said to him, no. I, just, I love that. I love that. He didn't get answered a yes or no question. He got asked a for us or adversary question. God answers questions however he wants. So it's always amusing to me, no. But here's what I am about. I am come as the commander of the army of the Lord. I am now Come And so that's his, his response. And the man informs Joshua of the fact that he's the commander of a greater army than uh, the army that's in Jericho or the army that's uh, associated with Israel. He is the commander of the army of the Lord. And we're going to see in just uh, uh, a moment that this is none other than uh, Jesus and what is known as a Christophany in the Bible, a uh, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, an Old Testament appearance of, of Jesus. Uh, happened with Jacob at the brook Jabbok and also with Abraham, and it happens here with, with Joshua as, uh, as well. Now, this army that this man uh, refers uh, to himself as being over is referring to this, the entire angelic host of God that is available to God for his purposes. He said, I, I, I am the commander uh, of, of the army of the Lord. I command angels. Now, angels are pretty powerful beings. Sometimes people say, God, if you're real, would you show me an angel? You better have had, just had a good physical before you do that. Because if you read the book of Revelation and you read about these angels, uh, that they're created beings, ministering spirits that, that, that God has created, they're fearsome, some of them. And uh, you might just go into some kind of a heart attack or a seizure of some kind and be present with the Lord uh, as a result of it. So, but they're, they're very uh, amazing beings and very adept at fighting in the physical realm or adept at fighting also in the spiritual realm. I think about the Old Testament 
uh, account, and it's a humorous account concerning Elisha's servants when uh, the city that they were in was completely surrounded by the armies of the king of Syria there at Dothan. And uh, this Syrian army comes around, surrounds the whole city. Uh, Elisha's servant goes out and he sees the whole city surrounded. He comes in and tells Elisha, the whole city surrounded. We're doomed. We're dead in this, in this whole thing. And the, Elisha prayed for his servant. And he said, Lord, I pray that you open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opened up the eyes of the man to, to see the... Uh, spiritual reality of the situation and what he saw was the entire army of the Syrians surrounded by an angelic host. All right, peace has returned to the servant's heart as a result of it. It really makes us wonder, I think, about what angels are sometimes attached to us as we do the Lord's work. The Bible says they're ministering spirits sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. God calls us to do certain things. We have His Holy Spirit with us. You think, why would we need angels if we have the fullness of the Spirit? I don't know where all the lines are in that, but I know we have the Spirit, and I know He dispatches whatever angel or number of angels He needs to dispatch with us in order for us to be successful in what it is that He's called us uh, to do. I think about the um, time when... Uh, king Hezekiah, uh, the king of Assyria, attacked the children of Israel, and the king's name was Sennacherib, and he laid siege to uh, Jerusalem with 185,000 uh, very seasoned men of war against the city uh, of, uh, and of Jerusalem. And uh, it was a hopeless situation. And uh, Hezekiah goes to the Lord, and he cries out to the Lord related to the situation. The Lord sent one angel, and that angel in one night completely destroyed the army of the Assyrians. 185,000 men in one night. The power of one angel. That reminds me then of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter... He's about to be arrested on the morning of his crucifixion. Peter pulls out a cross. I mean, not a cross. He pulls out a sword. And he's not going to begin to defend Jesus so that he doesn't have to go to the cross. He starts to swing, and all he ends up doing is cutting the ear off of uh, one of the servants of, of the religious leaders. And the Lord told him to put that sword away. He said, put that sword away. All this is being done in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He said, don't you know that I could call in a moment and have... Twelve legions of angels here on the spot. Well, a legion is 6,000 uh, soldiers made up a legion. Jesus said, I could just speak a word and have 72,000 angels here. Well, if it takes just one angel to kill 165,000 of the best soldiers in the world at the time, you multiply 100 and, se- uh, uh, 100 and uh, whatever thousands of those, <laughs> those soldiers times the 72,000, you've got a lot of killing power there. Jesus wasn't in, if things were not out of control in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what he's telling Peter here. So these angels are pretty amazing uh, creatures here. And, and so the, he's speaking to him here and saying, no, this is the army that I am commanding. And, of course, this is the army that was unseen, that was dispatched to Joshua and the children of Israel for the success of the conquering of the Promised Land and of Jericho. You think it was the horns that knocked down the walls of Jericho? 
was the angels just knocked the thing out of the way. They took care of business on things. Nobody could see it. And, and so Joshua, as a result of this, <clears throat> and, and the statement by this commander, <clears throat> excuse me, he fell on his face to the earth. So this is what he did. And he worshipped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? So we now know we're not talking about a regular angel here. We're talking about the Lord. Because no angel, unless it was a fallen angel, and this is not a fallen angel, no angel in right relationship with God would ever accept the worship of man. Remember in the book of Revelation when John was seeing these awesome things one after another after another in the heavenly scene and at some point he's so overwhelmed. This is the Apostle John, very, very spiritual person. And he's so overwhelmed by what, by what he's seeing. He doesn't have a glorified body yet and he falls down and he begins to, he feels a need to worship something. And he starts to worship the angel. And the angel says, stop that. Don't worship me. I'm just a servant like you. Worship God. So no angel, near angel, is going to take this worship. So the fact that this angel receives this worship and the fact that Joshua calls him Lord, it's an indication that it's none other than Jesus himself. And then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And so the same experience that Moses experienced with God at the, go at the burning bush uh, just prior to his, his great ministry. Here's the same experience that uh, Joshua is having with the Lord and we're told that Joshua did so. One of the great things that's happening with Joshua here is out taking this walk and God, how are we going to and what do you think and what are we going to and I need to hear and you've put me in this position of leadership and people are going to expect some leadership and all of these different kinds of things and the thing that the Lord establishes for Joshua right at the beginning of even before the conquest of the land is to let him know you're not in charge. I'm in charge. Joshua, you are number two. Now you would think that that would be an affront to a great man of God or servant of the Lord. It's never an affront. It's a relief. I'm number two. I'm number two. I'm number two. You ever get yourself in a pickle or some kind of thing? Just for, even for me, pastoring this church, sometimes things will come up and, I, and the whole thing, and then, and then somehow through some circumstance, the Lord might remind me or somebody else, and then somebody will say something like, well, you know, it's the Lord's church. That's right. That's right. I'm number two at best. Probably number 14 or something like that. And, and so here's a very important lesson for Joshua to realize he's doing the Lord's work, God's going to make sure that it's, it's successful. It doesn't all depend upon uh, him. And so that sets the stage then for the sit, per, first city uh, that's going to be conquered. And Lord willing, we'll get to it uh, next week, the actual conquest of the city of Jericho. One of the interesting things about the, city, the, the conquest of the city of Jericho is that uh, as we get into the chapter, and you can read ahead of time, is here's this huge build-up to the conquering of the city of Jericho. And when it happens, God encapsulates it in two verses. Two verses. You'd think he'd lay out this, and then we, we did this, and we came over here, and then this, and then we ran into this. It'd be like 16 chapters telling us all about the conquest. 
Two verses is all he tells us about the thing. It came, it did, the battle was it, that's it, and it's over, now let's move on. Because how the Lord works in our lives is it's almost never about the event. It's always about what the event is intended to teach us before and after. It's always about the preparation supremely, what God is building into our lives. And once all these things are built into their lives, the battle's a snap, the battle's nothing. It's a technicality, actually, to move through, and then it's on to the next thing that we're going to learn something about God from. I do wish that sometimes there were larger breaks between these lessons, don't you? Sometimes I find myself panting in between these lessons, but it is one thing, isn't it, to know about our God, is that, I mean, unless we really steel our heart against Him or harden our heart against Him, He never stops teaching us stuff. I mean, it's like the old saying goes, you know, we're not what we were, but we're not what we, well, let's see, what does the sin, don't help me. Don't help me on this. Some of you got it right there on this. Okay. Yeah, are you talking about me or how about... You said, thank God I'm not like that anymore. I took that personally. I don't know why. So, so what happens to me next in my life here that... But, there, but there's that whole thing, we're, we're not what we used to be, but we're not what we're going to be, but we are what we are right now. That's not it either on that either. So, so it's one of those really a great saying. Tom, you know what that saying is. See him in the library afterwards. He'll tell you what that is. But the nice thing about it, really, in all seriousness, is that how amazing, you know, uh, he is. He's just moving us to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing in order to produce a, a Christ-likeness in us and a maturity in us that wouldn't otherwise be there. And, and it's a wonderful thing that he's faithful to do that. And one of the reasons is, is that the more we become like Christ in this life, the more free we are. And it, it, Jesus was the freest person who lived in this human history. And it just sets us free Every little tiny thing that he makes us more like Christ. And he's so faithful to keep us growing and moving in that direction. Always preparing us. And then we get to see the victory. And then he moves on to the next thing. He's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And he never loses any, any uh, students as long as we're willing uh, to learn the lesson. So we'll stop there tonight. Won't get into Jericho. I'll get into that next week. And maybe we could have the worship team come forward and, and we'll enjoy a couple of worship songs before we close out this evening.